Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. And welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature Kevin Allison. He is the host of Risk, a live show and podcast where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I was looking for some other storytelling podcasts one day. You know, I've been listening to This American Life and The Moth Podcast, and I stumbled upon this one, Risk. This is an amazing podcast. I've been binge listening to every episode. I went back and bought the back episodes. Well worth the money. It's a great mix of hilarious and heartbreaking stories told by a range of people, including well-known and famous comedians and storytellers to first-timers. One of the listeners left a comment on the website that said, If you are looking for stories that shock you into being a human being again, this is the place. And I think that pretty much sums it up. Now, I wanted to have Kevin on the show because music is a huge part of this podcast. It's often setting the mood during the radio-style stories they do, or it captures the essence of the tale as a segue in between story segments. Kevin was a founding member of the legendary TV sketch comedy troupe The State, which ran on MTV for several years back in the 90s. I wanted to talk to him about his transition from sketch comedy into honest storytelling from a human perspective, and how he started the Risk podcast, and about his companion business, The Story Studio. We talked to Kevin about how music is important to him personally, and how he uses it within the podcast And we talked to him about some really cool things that are happening at the Risk Camp that are going to be very exciting. Sit back and relax to another Music Life Radio episode, this one entitled Risk, featuring Kevin Allison. Welcome, Kevin Allison, to Music Life Radio. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. It's great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? You don't need to get into a lot of detail, but I'd like to, I really, what was it that led up to the transition from you doing sketch comedy to storytelling? Yeah, I went to NYU to, uh, to go to their film school when I was an undergraduate, and that's where I met all the guys in the comedy group, The State. And we, uh, we were together for our four years during college doing sketch comedy. And then within a year or less than a year after graduating, we got a gig on MTV doing a show with Jon Stewart called uh, You Wrote It, You Watch It. And then, then that show was terrible. <laughs> so they, uh, they decided, no, we should give these, these sketch comedians their own show and the talk show host his own show. So they gave John a show and they gave us our own show, The State. Uh, it, that was the name of the show as well. It was a sketch comedy show on MTV in the early 90s. And so it was... 
it was a real rush, a ton of uh, success and creative freedom, you know, pretty much right out the gate after college with a super, super creative and talented group of people. And that's incredibly... People come, sometimes forget that when you're in a group like that, whether it's a band or a sketch comedy or an improv troupe, whatever it is, there's safety in those numbers. You know, like if you drop a ball, someone else is there to cover for it or put in a certain amount of energy that like helps lift all the boats, right? Oh, sure. Um, so when the state broke up in 96... I was terrified. I really, really didn't... I hadn't expected that. I thought we were going to be together forever, like the Rolling Stones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't think anyone else in the group thought that. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I was left kind of high and dry. And another thing was, everyone else in the group was incredibly clicky. You know, everyone else in the group, like, hung out with each other 24-7, but I was the only gay guy in the group. So I was, out of the 11 of us, the one who was always traipsing off at night to go off on my own little adventures with a co completely different sorts of people. Sure. Um, so there was just this natural me being the outlier, the black sheep, the guy who is less likely to be collaborating with so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and more likely to, to be doing stuff on my own. Um, I used to joke that I was kind of like Mel Brooks, what Mel Brooks was to your show of shows. You know, he wrote there with Woody Allen and Neil Simon and Carl Reiner and Sid Caesar, all those, all those guys. Uh, but they always considered his sketches, they, they would laugh that he would read them in the writing room and they'd go crazy. <laughs> and then they'd say, yeah, but we'll, we'll never put that on TV. Um, <laughs> So that was often my case. I was usually the guy who was writing sketches that were too crazy to actually go on TV. And so I always just felt like the black sheep. So when the group broke up, I made the mistake of not staying close to them. Not, you know, one of the things that, I, it's so funny, you can learn lessons in life and then completely forget them and have to relearn them the next decade, you know? So in college, I learned, oh, it's about who you know. It's, you know, like Spike Lee even came to NYU our first day, our first week of school and said, don't expect anything from this university that you're paying $20,000 a year for. That was back in whatever. Now it's, I think, 80000 or wow. something. Um, but he said, don't expect anything from the school. Look around you at the students next to you. That is what you're going to get out of this. Make friends with the most talented people you can find at this school. And I had done that and then forgot to stay friends with them after <laughs> the state broke up because, you know, it had been really rough. It was a rough group of people. I think that, you know, a lot of people get so disappointed when they hear that a band has broken up, for example, but when, I remember Rolling Stone read, uh, ran a, uh, an article several years back about the breakup of the Beatles. It was a real, uh, it was a long form article that went into the real nitty gritty of like the last year of the Beatles. And it, it's just tragic to read, but it seems so inevitable. There's something psychological going on with this sort of marriage 
that can't be saved. And that's what had happened with the state, too. Our last year together was kind of a mess, some backstabbing, a lot of tension. And I felt really scarred by it. So I thought, I'm just going to go off on my own. But I didn't know how to do anything other than sketch comedy. So I thought, okay, I'll do sketch comedy on stage alone. (laughs) (laughs) So I would get up on stage as crazy, larger-than-life, ridiculous characters delivering, delivering monologues. And, you know, I did that for 12 years while starving, while, you know, Mm. being evicted from uh, my apartment in the Lower East Side, taking jobs, doing things like cater waitering. I was just like drinking like crazy. While my friends were becoming millionaires, you know, they all moved out to Hollywood and, (laughs) and kept their connections going. I was starving and failing at this whole, I'm going to be doing crazy kooky characters on stage alone. So in 2008, I did a show called F Up. Uh, It was five crazy characters who had effed up their careers. So it was pretty obvious at that point that now I was really going for autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) Those characters were supposed to be representative of aspects of myself. But... (sighs) There was just something about hiding behind those characters where I just couldn't quite tap into some of the more serious stuff that I wanted to say. You know, like, like, comedy can be, certain types of comedy can be rather limiting unless you start mixing genres, you know, and... I, I was kind of trying to do that. I was trying to get some seriousness into some of those monologues and obviously trying to reveal some parts of myself, but it just wasn't quite clicking. And I did this show in San Francisco at their sketch fest uh, in 2008, and Michael Ian Black, uh, who was also a member of the state, came to see the show. And there were only about 12 people in the audience in in a room that could seat 300. So it was devastating to me. And after the show, I said, well, what'd you think? I just felt like I felt miserable. (laughs) And he said, you know, I really feel like that audience just wanted you to drop the act and start speaking from the heart as yourself. And I said, oh, God, I feel like I've heard that somewhere in the back of my head for the past 12 years, but I'm afraid of it because, you know, I'm too many things that I'm afraid Hollywood wouldn't see coming together. And that's a very typical thing. Like you find that there are other people who have like remade their careers in podcasting like Mark Maron, who for the longest time just, didn't strike Hollywood folks as being like, we don't know what to do with that guy. He's too weird and prickly a character. Uh, I felt the same way. I said to Mike, you know, I'm too gay and raunchy and kinky, but at the same time, too friendly and polite and sweet. Uh, At the same time, there's this kind of spiritual side to me. I mean, it just all doesn't add up. It's too weird. (laughs) And so it feels too risky. And he said, that's the word. He said, <laughs> if it feels risky, then it probably means you're opening up about stuff. 
And if you're opening up about stuff, the audience will open up to you. So I was like, all right. I went back to New York uh, and I said, all right, within a couple of days, I'm going to follow his advice, get up on stage and tell a true story as myself, even though I was terrified about the idea. So I contacted Margot Lightman, who had a show called Stripped Stories at the UCB Theater in Chelsea. And it uh, was all supposed to be stories about sex, your sex life. And so I thought, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prepare the riskiest story I can think of, which was about a time I tried prostituting myself. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, what happened was the day of the show, I called Margot Lightman and I said, oh, my God, I can't do this. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. I promised. I, I know this is so unprofessional of me, but I have to back out. This is too risky. And she said, oh, my God, that's great news. I said, what? <laughs> she said, there's someone every time we do this show, there's someone who calls and wants to pull out. <laughs> and, and it's someone who's like, usually, you know, has a ton of experience behind them and is used to getting up on stage five nights a week and that sort of thing. But because this show is so risky because it's about people's actual sex lives, uh, people freak out. But she says, when I get that phone call, if I can convince that person to do the show, that's the story that's going to knock it out of the park that night. <laughs> so I was like, all right, all right, you convinced me. So I went and I told the story that night, and I was a nervous wreck. And there were, I remember there were parts of the in while telling the story where I was like, oh, that sounded too gay. Oh, that sounded too polite. You know, like all those things that I thought I was too much of. Uh, but they loved it. It was such a, a bizarrely different reaction from an audience than I was used to from the <laughs> prior 12 years. I was actually looking in people's eyes and I could feel this energy, this sort of like resonant empathy between me and the audience and afterwards people weren't just saying that was funny people were grabbing me and saying oh my god that reminds me of a time when I was in the seventh grade and I got into this argument with my mom you know that kind of thing where it doesn't matter if someone's prostituted themselves before <laughs> that just the fact that you you were true with your emotions will cause some resonance to happen among people. So I literally walked away from that show last night. I was like, I've heard this word risk a couple times in the past seven days. I'm going to create a show called Risk, where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share in public. And I know I've got to make it a podcast because I'm a lazy person. I'm an <laughs> undisciplined guy. And... I was 39 at that time. So a lot of the creation of risk, I think, has to do with a 39-year-old man saying, I have got to do something I believe in and that, that is successful and that is working. And I really felt like I had it. And indeed, I, I, I had. Uh, because people responded to it immediately, the, the whole idea of the show. So how did you put together the first episode? Was that from the live recording you did at Arlene's Grocery, or did you start assembling stories together? You know, that's a great uh, question. I decided to team up with a uh, theater director named Michelle Walson, 
and uh, she was doing some some uh, direction uh, of sketch comedy shows at the People's Improv Theater at that time. And I think she would, yeah, she was at NYU as a as a film uh, as a graduate student uh, in film as well. And I just liked her sensibility and I liked her intelligence and everything. So I said, do you want to work on this project with me? And we decided, yes, it has to be a podcast, but it'll also be a, at that time, we thought it could be a weekly live show, which the thought of it now makes me want to shoot myself. (laughs) That's a lot Um, of work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, we, we did start just putting the word out in the storytelling community because I had ignored the fact that there was this burgeoning storytelling community in uh, New York for, you know, literally a decade already because The Moth started in 1998 and after about, you know, six or so years, it, there started to be these other shows that were doing what The Moth did, sure, but with their own little angles on it. And what I kind of noticed is that all of those storytelling shows had one thing in common with the moth in that they were trying to uh, fit into an NPR-friendly tone. That is a a sort of like a mild, liberal, feel-good, sort of edifying, you know, uh, this is something that you could share with your kids, you know. I mean, the moth itself was... Not yet on the radio, but it was very a very popular podcast already when Risk was uh, just beginning. And I noticed that, um, you know, a lot of it was the kind of things that you probably could play in the car when you're driving your kids to soccer practice. I also started listening to a lot of This American Life at that time, too. I was just kind of investigating what are these other storytelling outlets. And one of the things that struck me about This American Life was, at that point at least, I, don't, I haven't listened to it in years, but at that point, whenever a story included even the mention of something sexual happening, like, you know, because someone's about, you know, going to conceive with a baby or something like that in a story, Ira Glass would have to say, I have to warn you, this story acknowledges the existence of sex. (laughs) I know, it's pretty funny. (laughs) Which I thought was the most insane sounding. It it sounds like he might have been a little bit resentful that he had to say it, you know? Absolutely. Uh, So the wording of it was just so bizarre. Um, So, yeah, so I I was like, look, if if I am this guy, you know, I I knew, having shared that story about, uh, you know, prostituting myself, I knew that I had a treasure trove of crazy adventures that I had had throughout my life in the realm of being a kinky gay man, you know? So I, I knew that, that, that using my friendliness and my uh, kind of, you know, I don't know, approachable, personable personality and the fact that I'm also like a really kinky guy which seems like kind of an odd match, would actually be a great way to introduce people to a show where it's safe to say anything, right? 
So I, we did start recording some storytellers, and we had to really encourage them, look, here's where you can say things that you would hesitate to say at the moth. Because the moth is a competition, by the way. I, I mean, the, the, the moth story slams, where people get their first step into that whole world. And you literally will be voted out if you say something that's too sexually provocative. Mm. Uh, yeah. or, or, or too politically provocative. <laughs> um, so uh, so I, I was encouraging these people who I knew who had been doing shows like The Moth, uh, here's a place where you can like let it all hang out and talk about anything regardless of how emotional or sexy or kind of politically incorrect or whatever it might be, here's where you can talk the way you'd talk to your therapist or your best friend. Uh, so we started recording stuff, and then I just, I used to live on the Lower East Side, and I was still kind of in love with that neighborhood. So I, <laughs> I don't know why I thought Arlene's Grocery would be a, a place <laughs> to do it, because, I mean, I just, I just kind of, my, my formative years were there when I was in the state, uh, in the 90s, I used to live on Ludlow Street, so... I would go to a lot of those those music venues, you know. Um, there used to, I forget what it was called, but there used to be one literally right down. I used to be able to like. I remember walking downstairs from my apartment one time, and um, Jewel was playing in oh, the wow. basement of my apartment. <laughs> um, so anyway, I went over to Arlene's, and I was like, I don't know, this place feels like it could handle a, a, a X-rated kind of storytelling show. Because Arlene's is a punk, mostly a punk rock venue, yeah. you know. Uh, it's kind of a dive bar. It's kind of small. Um, but, you know, a lot of great bands come through there. And uh, it, 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 it wasn't ideal. I mean, we, we had to, like, clear a lot out of the way. People weren't quite comfortable. A lot of, a lot of people who were used to music there were a little confused what the hell is this <laughs> but people did get a kick out of it when they heard just how raunchy and how uh uncensored a lot of the stories were it was really you know i think it was like the third or fourth week that we were at arlene's we had michael ian black on the show and people are used to seeing him be a super snarky guy, especially on shows like I Love the 80s and stuff like that. Yeah. Or in commercials, he plays a snarky guy. So when people saw him at Arlene's getting up on risk and speaking totally as himself, like totally letting the snark drop and like really kind of coming clean about like, professional jealousy that he had with other members of the state and accidentally vomiting in the in the uh uh all over himself in, in a kind of tense situation between other comedians <laughs> <laughs> people were like what is this he's being completely <laughs> honest with us and that's when people started to be like oh that's what this show is all about so um the first the first show at arlene's was in August, I think the first week of August of 2009, and the first episode of, of the podcast, because the podcast is always a mix of, or, or, or it's usually a mix of, radio-style stories, which are recorded in person, kind of like the way we're talking now, 
and, oh, except with music and sound design added. Sure. Um, and these stories that are recorded at the live shows. So the first podcast episode went up in Octo- October 6 of 2009. And it, you know, it, it was... Risk has been successful from the very beginning, but nowhere near the kind of success that people associate with podcasts that like, like a lot of podcasts have become hugely successful right out of the gate. Like Mm -hmm. Welcome to Night Vale or Serial or even even, uh, WTF with Mark Maron. Risk took a long time to build. We now get over a million downloads a month. But uh, it took a long time to really build that audience because I think that a show that has three or four intensely personal, often totally hilarious, but still like very, um, you have to pay attention uh, sorts of stories is uh, kind of demands the listener's attention and... You know, some, sometimes people are a little shy about, oh my gosh, how emotionally spent do I want to get right now just in case this episode takes a real left turn, which they often do. You know, I kind of like the way that it often surprises people without trigger warnings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that, that's how it all began. Well, great. Now, did you use Arlene's Grocery for several uh, live shows, or do you still use that venue at all? And, and then when you were using them, if, or even if you still are, what, what would you do? Would you be sandwiched in between bands, or would it just be storytelling night at Arlene's? Oh, no, yeah, no, no. It was, we would have a show at, like, 7, and then immediately after us, they started into all bands. Oh, that makes uh, sense, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... Our show was fairly early, and then then the real rock and roll was about to start. Uh, they might have had one other variety kind of show back then, uh, but I think it still incorporated a, a lot of music, you know? So, yeah, I, we were an anomaly there at that time. We did eight weeks at Arlene's, and then we got an offer, or, or we started talking to Joe's Pub. So... That was really interesting. I don't know if you know anything about Joe's Pub, but that that's like uh, an enormous leap into another realm. Yeah. Joe's Pub is a very, very swank uh, nightclub uh, where you're go- you're it's like a two drink minimum. You might go to see some like uh, you know uh, modern jazz or or someone singing there, you know. But anyway. We went to Joe's Pub, and it was amazing to suddenly be in this enormous space that can seat, I don't know, 300 or something. And it's just so beautifully designed acoustically and technically. But then there, there was, we were kind of backstabbed out of that place because there was a woman who had a show there where people would read personal essays personal essays that they had had published or were trying to get published in places like the New York Times or Harper's or the Atlantic or what have you. And she said that because 
she encouraged her her artists with i guess maybe it was in the description of the show or or the way that she talked about the show she encouraged her artists to take a risk with how uh what they're sharing with the audience that she thought that we were basically like copying her or something. <laughs> i had never heard of her show before and yeah. you know the concept that art can be risky or expressing yourself can be risky is certainly nothing new. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and there's a big difference between reading a personal essay and speaking directly to the audience without notes or with maybe just a few bullet points to jot at or to look at if you get lost. So they were very different shows, but she was like, no, there's not enough room in this town for both of us. So... Uh, she convinced Joe's pub to get rid of us. But, you know, in retrospect, I'm thankful that that did happen because we were still so new. And it's expensive to go to Joe's pub. I mean, we had, we had some big names during those four, or at least maybe two out of those four times we were at Joe's. One time we had Margaret Cho, and she just brought the house down. Oh, yeah. But she told a story that was so personal and about a boyfriend of hers that uh, was also, you know, it, it, people could put it together, who, who she was talking okay. about. Wow. Uh, so she was like, I really can't let you podcast that. So that's that stank. But <laughs> it, was, it was actually, I think, good for us to be pushed out of Joe's and go back into smaller theaters where we could, you know, have some lean times to get through. Uh, I do think that that's true of the podcast as well. It's kind of a good thing that the podcast wasn't getting a million downloads a month, you know, uh, uh, right from the get go because, you know, I, I, after 12 years of failure, needed some time to adjust <laughs> to becoming successful again, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember uh, we, we spoke to, um, I don't know, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but we spoke to the MailChimp people about advertising on Risk at one point, and, you know, they had those ads at the beginning of every episode of Serial, and Serial yep. was so huge. Hugely popular immediately. In fact, when they put out a 30-second ad for it as the first episode on iTunes, it was number one. <laughs> so it was obvious that This American Life was putting a lot of advertising behind the show before it was even up. Yeah. But, but the MailChimp people said that uh, they would get back to us. You know, it, it might be several months because their entire business was thrown into a frenzy <laughs> by how much attention they got from the cereal, which they were not anticipating. Wow. Yeah. Advertising really does work then in that case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what is the live venue that you would call home in the New York area now? <clears throat> oh, well, now we are at the People's Improv Theater. And, you know, it makes sense because I was the artistic director of the People's Improv Theater in 2007. And so, you know, the People's Improv Theater, the pit, is a lot different now than it used to be. But back then, it really was home. It was very much a community. What you see happen with these communities in, in 
well, I mean, I'm sure it happens in every city, but I've watched it very closely happen in New York. Uh, first, there was the Upright Citizens Brigade teaching people improv and sketch and stand-up. And then the People's Improv Theater broke away from them. It was people from UCB who broke away to create the pit. Uh, and then that was looked upon as the place, oh, this place is much more like a family, much more like a community, and much more everyone's got your back, and the UCB is now much more like a factory. Mm. Well, now the pit feels like that, and the magnet has broken away from the pit, and people say, oh, the magnet's much more like a family. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's the way <laughs> things go. But, um, but yeah, we are currently at the People's Improv Theater still. Have you ever thought of doing any kind of a video format? I mean, this this podcast is so amazing. I know, you know, things like This American Life, they went off and did a video series. I think it was on Showtime or one of those. Yeah, yeah. Have you thought about what you could do to expand risk, or are you pretty comfortable where you're at with the podcast format? I am comfortable with where I'm at, but I'm antsy to take on new challenges. I, you know, uh, on the podcast, I talked, oh, I don't know, maybe a month ago, I talked about how I was going to do something really, really drastically dramatic in my life, which was to give up marijuana and alcohol. And then this third thing, which is uh, poppers, which is something <laughs> that pretty much only gay men know about. Um, but also uh, ended up, becoming a vegan, right? So, so I am in the middle right now of the beginning of a huge overhaul of my health. And one of the reasons I'm doing that is because, yes, I want to now take things to the next level. And I know that I really need a lot more energy and clarity and just, you know, uh, just all my resources to take on something more. So, yes, we have been exploring that possibility. And it's a really, really juicy opportunity, uh, really, because the stories that are told on risk, they they just naturally go into different genres. You know, uh, some of the stories on risk are like horror stories, mm -hmm. especially the ones we run around Halloween. Uh, some have even been a little bit like musicals, you know. Um, some are just hilarious comedies. And so, yes, there's, there's some are, are could easily... Uh, be adapted into and have already been adapted into animated pieces, you know, uh, uh, cartoons. Uh, some could be uh, adapted into the sort of um, comedic sketch comedy sort of reenactment sort of thing that Dave Chappelle was doing uh, several years ago. Wow. And uh, some can just be like straightforward, like, really intense little movies, you know? So, yes, we are exploring that possibility right now. Oh, very cool. That's, that's yeah. nice to hear. Yeah. Now, music has been a big part of uh, the Risk podcast. How do you go about selecting music that you're going to use in between these stories? Well, first of all, I am someone who just is kind of addicted to taking in, to searching for new songs. It's interesting because, you know, people talk all the time about how the iPod changed the way people listen to music because people were, became much more focused on 
single songs rather than whole albums. But I was raised with a gigantic, my father, my brothers, my sister, like everyone in the family had big record collections. So I grew up uh, just searching on records for any song that it, within like 30 seconds, if it really caught my attention, then, you know, I would just always go back to that record and that song. <laughs> um, so people often ask me, well, who are your favorite bands? And nowadays, I don't even know because, <laughs> because I listen to so many singles, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> um, but I definitely, you know, am always like in love with like three or four songs at the same time, right? And I also love putting together mixes, right? I did that all throughout uh, grade school and high school, putting together cassette mixes of great songs for people. So when I started the podcast, I realized I want music to be a big part of this because music is a form of storytelling in itself, albeit uh, usually much more abstract and poetic. Uh, the one person I have always just been a huge fanatic fan of is Bob Dylan. So I learned a lot about storytelling and a lot about, uh, I guess, music from just listening obsessively to him for decades. Oh. I decided, yeah, music should be a big part of the show because that would also make it a little bit more lively and edgy and youthful. And, and also, I knew it should be indie music because... Risk itself started as very much of an outlier, uh, very much an indie production. We were looking at, at that time, people were always comparing us to The Moth, and they still do, or This American Life. And we would have to laugh at that because we were like, they have enormous staffs. They have all this, this money from NPR and from the MacArthur's and all those kind of people. And we had nothing like we literally <laughs> just started with credit card debt the way that people you know would used to do uh in independent movies in the 80s <laughs> yeah. so yeah so so we were very much an indie outfit and we felt like indie music should be on the show now initially initially i thought that all of the music should be uh, original and created for the show too and that's another one of those things <laughs> like like back at Arlene's thinking the we weekly live show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just, uh, we did, for example, if you go back to the first season, the risk theme at the top of the show changes every episode. We were just inviting every musician we knew around New York city. Uh, and even new musicians we didn't know, you know, from Craigslist or MySpace or stuff. Um, to, you know, to create little songs, no longer than 30 seconds, that somehow included the word risk or the concept of uh, stepping outside your comfort zone. And so we probably had about 25 or 30 of them that were made over time. And some of them are amazingly wonderful, you know. We still do every now and then throw one on the show, like at the end of a, uh, you know, as an Easter egg on the show, that sort of thing. But eventually we decided, no, we, we, we really do need to come up with a theme song that is the official theme song that we run every week. I mean, after all, that is one of those things that people just expect out of a series. It's Certainly. kind of an anchoring thing. And we, we got the idea, you know what? 
as far as rights go, because it was the Wild West then, and it kind of still is, quite frankly, the internet as far as the rights for running a song on your podcast, uh, it was really iffy what, what the rules about that were. So I decided just to write to bands directly, it, it, especially if a band had a website that had info at and the band's name, or, 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 or it was clear that you could reach the artists themselves rather than having to go through a label or a manager, you know? Oh, sure. Because yeah. whenever I could reach the artists themselves, they would say, oh, this show sounds cool. Yeah, sure. I mean, what the hell? We don't mind 30,000 more people hearing our song. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so. And that became a model. You know, we, we, every now and then, we'll hear from someone saying, oh, no, 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 we don't want to give you the rights to run that. Uh, but uh, most of the time, they're perfectly happy. So, yeah. And we even have episodes called The Best of Risk Music. Uh, you know, there are like seven of those now, which is just a mix of all the indie bands we've featured on the show, of, of you know, the favorite songs that we've included. Uh, and people compliment me all the time saying, you have great taste in music. <laughs> you do, and you have a huge variety. I think, you know, I've, I've been binge listening to the podcast, and, you know, I don't think I've ever heard the same song twice, other than the theme song, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I do is... I invite, uh, there's like, oh, maybe six or, you know, I, it kind of fluctuates. I invite listeners of the show to be my quote-unquote music interns. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> and these are people who love Risk, but who also love uh, keeping track with what's going on on Pitchfork or on All Songs Considered or whatever those outlets are where uh, music that matters, all those places that like feature what's going on in the indie scene, the kind of you know people who would go to South by Southwest and all that kind of thing. And uh, these six or so people every month will send me 20 tracks that they think I should hear. Uh, so there's always that. Then there's something called the Indie Rock Playlist. It's, it's kind of a website and a playlist that uh, just features 200 of the best indie rock singles of that month. Uh, and then there's someone who broke away from that who created Burp, B-I-R-P, which is Blaylock's Indie Rock Playlist. <laughs> so I, basically, my iPod is filled with thousands of singles that have come out in the last month or two at all times and i'm always listening to them and always saying oh wait 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 i can use that one for the show and it seems like you actively connect something uh, that means something to you to each of the stories is that true you're not just yeah. randomly picking these songs yeah yeah sometimes it's it's a very kind of like clearly literal link you know what i mean like yeah. like can, you can hear in the song that it is singing about what the story was just about. And then other times, it's, uh, it's just kind of, I don't know, this just feels like it fits this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, so what is the podcast theme that, that you have you know, now, your active theme? Where did that come from? Who's the band that performed it? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's a band called Worm Burner, and they uh, are located, they're, they're based in New York. They perform often at Mercury Lounge, and I happen to be friends with the lead singer, gosh, going back to, uh, you know, the mid-90s. You know, we've known each other probably since I was maybe on the state. Um, just friends of friends. And I, I guess, I don't know, I, I, I guess I just thought maybe those guys would be, you know, cool with, because they, they, they make that sort of catchy, sort of like uh, punky pop kind of sounding stuff. And uh, so I had them do it, but then we, then they got all busy and went out on a tour or something like that, or, or maybe to record a record and they couldn't like really be in contact with me f during a, a stretch where we decided it could use, an, it could use more gu guitar. Certainly, so yeah. we, we contacted this guy, my friend Jeff, uh, Jeff Barr is the editor of the Risk podcast. He edits all the episodes and edits the radio style stories. He said, oh, well, I know a really good guitar player in uh, Denver, I think. So he contacted this guy named John Sonderecker. So basically it's Wormburner is, you know, put together the tune and John Sonderecker is a, put together a, um, a really great guitar that we laid over it. Yeah, that's a great piece of music. I love that guitar. <laughs> Every oh, time thanks. I hear it, I just go, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Now, we talked a little bit about uh, music and its influence on you early on. What kinds of music were you listening to as a kid growing up? You talked about you know, having access to all that records, but are you a rock guy? Did you listen to a lot of classical? What kind of stuff were you listening to early on? Uh, it's funny. I really was, I, I really was listening to a, a slew of stuff from the very beginning. My father uh, was way into opera and symphonic music. And so I, I, my two older brothers, he loved opera and football. And so he recognized <laughs> right from the start that my two older brothers, he could take them to football games and that I was the kid he could <laughs> take to the opera, right? <laughs> yep. He just had a sense for what was going on with me. So, uh, so I was kind of raised on that. Uh, then he would buy me like classical records for my birthdays and stuff like that. But then my brothers, this was the mid seventies, right? When this was very much dazed and confused era. My two older brothers were in high school. And so they got themselves an amazing stereo system with really awesome Sirwin Vega speakers. And they were always playing the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Dylan and uh, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and just just all over the place. Prog rock stuff like Genesis. Uh, so they, they were kind of in their own inner sanctum where they were smoking pot and stuff and I wasn't invited in there. <laughs> but I remember one day I heard Obla Di Obla Da coming out of their uh, uh, 
coming from behind that door. And I asked my brother, David, what is that? And he said it was the Beatles. And so I asked my dad, I was like, can the next record you get me be this thing called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? So that Christmas, he got me that instead of a, you know, another uh, a classical record. And I became obsessed with the Beatles. But at the same time, I for some reason, was obsessed with, with musicals. The record that spoke to me the most when I was a little kid, there was, there was Free to Be You and Me, which is a funny, uh, it's kind of a teaching kids to be okay with gender. You know, Margot uh, Margo Kidder put together this record called Free to Be You and Me. And there's a whole ton of amazing people on it. And it's all about, it's very 1970s women's lib teaching kids to be okay with, you know, boys can do girlish things and girls can do boyish things. But then I, I discovered Jesus Christ Superstar when I was seven. And I, that was, was a record that I just became obsessed with. I still think that that record, the, the, the original recording project, the 1970 record, which was never really intended to be a stage piece, is a pretty extraordinary piece of music. Um, he's got, Andrew Lloyd Webber was very young himself at that time, and he managed to put together uh, some big rock names, like the lead singer from Deep Purple, um, some amazing jazz musicians, and I think it was like the London Symphony. So he's got this rock and roll uh, meshing together of rock, jazz, and, and classical that is really kind of remarkable. And that probably pushed me a little bit into the realm of musicals as well. Uh, I became very interested in Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and um, uh, the guys who wrote Cabaret, all that kind of stuff, the Bob Fosse kind of musicals. Uh, I, I was interested in all of that when I was a kid. I am no longer interested in musicals. I think that they really took a downturn after the whole Les Mis thing. Mm, yeah. uh, I, I, there was something about the way that the songs were written that started appealing more toward the pop song end of things, you know, the top 40, uh, than it was toward the kind of clever, like, um, Tin Pan Alley sort of writing of Cole Porter and Rodgers and Hammerstein. So I'm no longer so interested in Broadway music but uh, still love rock and jazz. Jazz became more important to me when I moved to New York. Uh, my brother, when I moved to New York, used to, you know, put on Miles Davis or John Coltrane, and I started to get really into that. So, yeah, my musical tastes have always been all over the map, and I kind of love that, you know. I, I love that, uh, always being interested in a in a eclectic stew of things. I'm kind of a fan of this show, um, All Songs Considered, on uh, NPR. It's available as a podcast, too. 
the whole idea is that they're going to be eclectic on the show, but you, you learn pretty quick as you start to listen to them that the two or three or four people that they have DJing the show do have their specific taste, you know, so you, you're not going to hear everything you want to hear. But it really is interesting uh, to hear. I just think that this is a particularly interesting time when we have access to so much music. Yeah, it's almost overwhelming but uh but it is cool like we had uh there was a new york band called moon hooch i don't know if yeah. you're familiar with them those guys are great i had them on yeah. the show a little while ago and they're exploding but they you know that it's not something you would hear every day you know that mix of two saxophones and drums and what they can do with it it's just amazing yeah 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 i always love those odd those odd little mixes of the the you're you're surprised that it's these instruments yeah 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 yeah. what does what does music mean to you this is a question we like to ask everybody what are your feelings uh what does the music mean to you well i think you know i told a story on the podcast recently about um uh that i have this kind of obsession with the idea of altered states um and when I was a child, I spent a lot of time daydreaming, you know, going off into my own universe. And I associate records with that to a, to a great extent. When I was a real little kid, they, they would joke, my parents and my other relatives would joke that I would just walk into grandma's house or whatever and point at the stereo and then just sit in front of it and listen to something uh, for hours, I would be, they would be like, oh, we don't have to worry about him. Just put on some music and he'll just stare at the label going around <laughs> and around and around. So there was something hypnotic about music to me going into, you know, being able to access through music different emotional states and different parts of your imagination than you might have even known, you know, were there. And so... Yeah, I mean, I, I totally relate to people when, for example, someone says, "Oh, something, something awful has happened to them," and and they just they're just filled with rage and they want to turn on Nirvana. I'm like, I totally get that. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, sometimes someone will be struck by something really sad and will want to you know put on Seeger Rose or something like that, right? And that to me is kind of what music is. It's this, I think it, it may be the most abstract of the arts and the hardest to pin down, you know, like my producer of, of risk, her name is JC Cassis and she loves top 40 pop music, you know, uh, Beyonce and all that. And we argue all the time because she, she says that, you know, my music is cliche and this or that. And I say hers is cliche and this or that. And it's friendly arguing, arguing you know. I, I, that's one of those things where we, I think we both kind of know that music is so subjective. You know, there's no, there's no, she's like, for example, one thing she always says to me is, why do you like Radiohead? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like she's really angry that some people like Radiohead. <laughs> <laughs> And I 
that's a very hard question to answer as far as I'm concerned. You know what I mean? It's like an emotional thing. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, of course, you can try to intellectually say, well, you know, the, the way that they've got all these polyrhythms going with the drums. and the, But ultimately, it's, it's feeling, you know. Um, and so that's what I think is so fascinating about it. Now that I'm sober, you know, it's interesting because... I also associate, uh, uh, you know, one of my favorite things to do would be to get drunk <laughs> and listen to music or get stoned and listen to music because then there's even other things enhancing the experience. But what's interesting to note is that when you get sober, it's like, oh, that nothing is really diminished, you know, it's just like, oh, you've got to clearer path into the feeling or just a, another angle into the way that that it's affecting you oh certainly yeah and that what you summed up there about feeling i think is a really great tie-in to you know the risk podcast you are playing stories that are you know pulling on people's emotions and there's a huge amount of feeling and, and emotion both in music and in your stories oh yeah you know the that's one of the reasons I love the radio style stories so much is because Jeff, our editor, gets to work with a lot of mostly ambient or, or noise sort of uh, music uh, to like kind of lay in. And, and I always tell people, if you can, to listen to it on headphones because you can hear all the nuances of that better on headphones than you can if you're playing it out of speakers. Like there was one just recently about a woman who has a nervous breakdown when her car breaks down in the middle of the Lincoln Tunnel during a, a terrible storm. Mm. And we were excited about that story, not just because of, you know, it's about an emotional turning point in her life, but because I was like, oh gosh, the water, the tunnel, all mm -hmm. these things are things that we can suggest with ambient noise in a way that can be really affecting. So I love that kind of stuff. What makes a good story, in your opinion? Well, it's, it's several things. It's, you know, first of all, a person's personality uh, will really shine through if they are kind of challenging themselves to, to be as truthful as they can. Uh, about something. And so th there are various, you know, flavors to people's personalities and their voices, you know, like their voices can be really fascinating to listen to, uh, the way that they uh, show the different colors of their personalities. And if a person is really present to what they're talking to, they will often start laughing, start crying, get a little carried away, and, and you can feel the tenseness in their voice if, if the story itself starts to get tense. So it's interesting to notice what happens to a person psychologically if they're really being authentic about something. But other things that a story, uh, you know, are very helpful to have in a story are, for one thing, surprise. We love hearing about times that life, you know, threw something in your face that you weren't expecting or were not quite prepared to deal with, uh, because that gives us tremendous catharsis to hear, oh, gosh, someone went through that. Man, 
I, you know, so that's how a person would live through a, such a insane thing that that person had to go through. So surprise is really great. And another thing is just that knowing that that person really cared about what they were going through. I, when, whenever I brainstorm with people on what story are you going to tell, I always start with, well, can you think about the time that you were most embarrassed or most thrilled or most furious or most terrified or most like, you know, walking on air in love, you know, uh, and start brainstorming by zeroing in on specific incidents that were happening around those emotions when you really cared. And finally, what really makes a good story is when a person can bring specific scenes to life, when they can recall the look in someone's eye, the tone in someone's voice, uh, the ambient noise in the room, the way that a person gestured, like those nitty-gritty details about sensory things that were observed in a moment of high emotion uh, really helped to bring a story alive. Oh, very good. Yes. Now, uh, to tie this in with the Story Studio, this, this is your latest venture that you launched a few years ago, and this is to help people with their storytelling skills, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. In the process of making Risk, I realized, oh, I really love helping people pull their stories out of them and helping them shape them, right? So, and, and I was like, wow, I really have, I, I'm good at that too. So I decided, why don't I create a school around it? Because there's a few different reasons that people would have for working on stories. One is the business realm, right? People, you know, have to go into job interviews or have lunch with a client or, you know, say something at a staff meeting or maybe even make a big presentation in front of a bunch of people. And for, the, for all of that, if, if they're good at, like, holding people's attention, grabbing their attention, getting them feeling something and making it mean something you know, arriving somewhere in the end instead of just drifting off, uh, they can become much more persuasive with what they're doing, hoping to accomplish, leading people. And then there are people who are either just, they want to work on their social skills in general, they want to like do a little creative something that some uh, would involve a little bit of self-exploration, or people who really do want to do these shows like The Moth or Risk, which, you know, in New York City... There's dozens of these storytelling shows now, and I, it's very common for them to be springing up in smaller cities as well. So there's all kinds of reasons that people want to work on their ability to craft a story. Maybe they're working on a book, or um, maybe they're a preacher, or some, I've dealt with uh, musicians as well who want to work on their banter between songs or their ability to be interviewed about their songs. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, I teach all kinds of workshops there at the Story Studio. Uh, some of them are one-on-one -on -one over Skype. Uh, some, we have these video lecture series that you can kind of take in your own time at your own pace. 
And then there are the corporate workshops that where I, I'll literally travel to different parts of the country or the world. I went to Latvia recently to teach one. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So all kinds of stuff is happening there. If anyone out there is interested in uh, learning a little bit more about storytelling, just go to thestorystudio.org. Perfect. And where is the Risk podcast on the web? <laughs> Yeah, Risk is pretty much everywhere that podcasts are, but the easiest place to find it is usually iTunes. If you just look up Risk with an exclamation point at, in the iTunes store, it's there under podcasts. Uh, but our home on the web is risk-show.com, risk-show.com. Perfect. And then you've got information for those if they're interested in submitting a story. All of your guidelines are on the website as well. That's right. What is next for Kevin Allison? I know you've talked a bit about uh, looking into the realm of video. Uh, anything else? No, other than that, I think we're going to continue touring. We're looking to do more touring of the show. Um, we'd love to start getting up into Canada. There are places we haven't been, like New Orleans or... I don't know where all we haven't been yet, but we are looking to expand all the cities that we're going to. Cleveland we've never been to. Um, and, of course, a lot of the cities that we have already been to, we want to get back to because, you know, it, it's once you're in a town, you can start developing a relationship with folks there. I teach workshops whenever I take the show out as well. So, yeah, the, the, the live shows, the tours... The podcast and the, all the workshops are keeping me busy for now. And then there's this, you know, how to maybe start telling these stories in TV format is the next thing that we're looking into. You're a busy guy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dan. Oh, time circa back in the day when you couldn't find yourself and it just made you cringe and turn to say Oh, I know this is just, just a story in my head Oh, I know this is just, just a story in my head Where we dead
Thanks again to Kevin Allison for an awesome interview. Uh, go and check out Risk. It is really a great podcast. I didn't throw any story snippets in because they, they range about 10, 15, 20 minutes each. But also, I would like to thank um, that last song we heard was from a band called My Dear, D-E-E-R, a song called Story, and that's featured on the Best of Risk Music Podcast number nine. Now that Best of Music also features uh, the band's Clemency, Mansions on the Moon, The Brave Kind, and Raylan Baxter. So go and check it out. And of course, the intro and outro music, courtesy Kevin McLeod under Creative Commons license at Incompetech.com. I am your host, Dan Sauter, for Music Life Radio. Thanks for checking us out, and we'll catch you next time.